Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Hildegard Heyman, Distinguished Professor and Ray Rossi Endowed Chair in Viticulture and Enology at UC Davis. Dr. Heyman has worked in all areas of sensory science, evaluating a wide array of food and non-food items like wine. In this episode, we talk about the principles and history of sensory science and how we quantify the science of perception. Additionally, we talk about wine, food pairings, and how the California wildfires impacted grape quality. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Hildegard Heyman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for asking me. I'm excited. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in sensory science, and in particular, viticulture and enology? Okay, it's actually the other way around. My bachelor's degree is in viticulture and enology, which I did in South Africa in the 70s. And when I graduated, women were not exactly welcomed in wineries. And so I went to work for a research facility, but I wanted to make wine. And after a couple of years, I decided if I got a master's degree, then maybe that would uh, let me into a winery. So I came to Davis to do a master's in um, enology on a fermentation science project. And um, the second to last quarter I was here, I didn't have any classes left. And one of my friends convinced me that I needed to take this food science class called sensory science which I didn't really need for anything and I didn't really want to take. But long story short, she convinced me to take the class. And about five weeks into that class, it was in Cruise Hall in room 107. I vividly remember even 40 plus years later, looking at Rosemary Pangborn, who was teaching the class and saying to myself, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. It was a little complicated because obviously I needed to finish a master's in something entirely different. I needed to go back to South Africa and figure out how I was going to pay for this change of life. But long story short, I actually ended up coming back here mm-hmm. a couple of years later and started doing a PhD in sensory science uh, through Ag Chem. And uh, then luckily enough, got a job right at the end of my PhD without a postdoc. I went to the University of Missouri in their food science department. I worked as a sensory scientist for them for about 17 years. Okay. Became a professor and all the, you know, all the stuff. And then uh, my PhD advisor retired from here, and Davis called me and said, would you like to come back? And so I did. 20 years later, here I still am. That's amazing. So what is sensory science? In sensory science, we use humans as our measuring devices. We want to find out how humans perceive essentially the world, but mostly usually it's food, non, um, personal care products, and things along those lines. There are two types of sensory science. There is analytical sensory science where we are interested in the product itself. Is this wine more sour than that wine? Is this ice cream more creamy than that ice cream? Of these 10 ice creams, which one has the most fat perception? Mm-hmm. And then there's consumer sensory science, where we are interested in how people like or dislike the product. So here are four wines, which one do you prefer? Here are four wines, how much do you like each one? Those kind of things. So analytical sensory is essentially objective. We try to do everything we can to make it objective, keeping in mind that we are dealing with a human brain. Mm. Um, But Consumer sensory science is totally subjective because we're only really interested in how people like or dislike, not why or anything along those lines. But in both of these cases, we use the human as our measuring device. 
And could you give a brief history of sensory science and maybe how those methods have changed? Okay. So the first studies on that of what eventually became sensory science was in psychophysics in Germany in the 1860s. Then in the early 20th century, um, some brewers, some brewing companies and some spirit companies came up with some difference testing where you basically have two products and you're trying to see if they're significantly different from each other. Then in the during World War II, the quartermaster store, which was responsible for the rations for American soldiers, realized that these things were not edible. <laughs> and they started working on liking work, which went on after World War II. And they started trying to figure out how they can make the rations better. At about the same time, somebody came uh, at Arthur D. Littler in Boston came up with a technique to describe product in a terms of its attributes. So all of these disparate things were hanging out there towards mm -hmm. the late 50s. And then in 1960, the chair of the food science department at Davis asked um, Rosemary Pangborn, Maynard Amarine, who was a faculty member in viticulture and enology, and Dr. Russler, who was a statistician, if they could take all these pieces and put them together in a class so it's all in one place. Mm. And so they started teaching sensory evaluation of food. Okay. In 1960. This is essentially the same class I took in 1980. Okay. Um, the reason why it spread is Rosemary Pangborn made the decision that she would share her syllabus with anybody who asked. Oh, wow. And to this day, most sensory classes around the world follow a very similar pattern to the one that she created in 1960. At the same time, the French... Uh, we're also sort of going in the same direction. So there's more than one start, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's the start here. Okay. Yeah. And then when you're talking about the analytical versus descriptive, or like how much of like the analytical sensory science is it just looking at the chemical compounds that make up the. No, 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 no. We don't look at chemistry at all. Uh, that the flavor chemists do. That is okay. a. So basically, flavor can be defined mm -hmm. as the psychological interpretation of the physiological response to a physical stimulus. Okay. The physical stimulus part is what the flavor chemistry people look at, or the chemists, mm -hmm. or this is the the compounds. Okay. The physiological response is what happens in your receptors, in your eye, your nose, and your mouth. Okay. And then that information gets sent to your brain, and your brain then interprets what it is getting mm -hmm. into some information. So if you give me a chocolate mm -hmm. to smell, I will smell it, and my brain will get all these chemicals through the nose receptors into my brain. And because I've had chocolate before, I'm going to go, oh, it smells like chocolate. Mm -hmm. If you give me something that looks like chocolate but doesn't smell like chocolate, my brain's going to go, I don't really know what's going on here. Yes. So that's sort of okay. so 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 we are interested in how you perceive things, how you respond to what the mm -hmm. information that's coming to you. So then, how do you keep it relatively subject uh, objective? objective? Okay, so the first thing we need to know is that we're all different. Mm -hmm. We're all very different. The way that we we are we all look very different, and we don't find that a problem. But we make the assumption that we all smell and taste and see the same way. We know there are some people who are. Um, colorblind, and there are some people, but in general, we make the assumption that we all see and smell and taste the same. Yeah. We don't. 
Yeah. We're all very, very, very different in that sense. But luckily, it overlaps enough that we can sort of get the core piece of it. Mm-hmm. So if you take your, the palms of your hands and you put them together, yeah. that's the core piece that overlaps. And we all do the same thing yeah. essentially there. And then our fingers are now the things that make us different. Yeah. And in order to really get good data, we need to use more than one person because the person that you may use may be incapable of, say, smelling violets. Mm-hmm. And so if there's violet in a product, they're not going to smell it. So you need a lot of people so you can get an average outcome, so you can actually see. That means that we're doing lots of data, Mm -hmm. which means we need statistics because we can't analyze stuff when we've got, you know, 20 people or 15 people or or hundreds of people for consumer work. The other thing we do for analytical sensory is we tend to do it in a very defined space. We create a sensory mm-hmm. space that has nothing else going on. Okay. White walls, computer screen in front of you, product in front of you, something to spit into, and you don't really have anything to distract you. So mm-hmm. you can only concentrate on what's in front of you and you can get better data that way because you're not getting distracted. Mm-hmm. Similarly, when we do consumer work, we can do it in the same space which is kind of boring because we don't usually drink wine in a sensory booth. But we can get really good data about how you like it. On the other hand, we can also do in-home testing. So we can send you the bottle of wine, which is not totally legal in the United States, so we don't do that. We could send you the bottle of wine and ask you to tell us how much you liked it. Now we don't have any control of what you actually did, Mm -hmm. but we're probably closer to what you really would do on a day-to-day basis. That makes sense. So by doing it both ways, we can sort of see what the differential is between doing it in a control space versus doing it at the latest barbecue. Yeah. And then when they like it, what is the rating? What's the scale? So the usual rating for liking is the nine-point hedonic scale where hedonic is the liking rating. And it goes from dislike extremely through neither like nor dislike to like extremely. So it has a negative and a positive pole. It was originally created by the Department of Defense um, using GIs in the 40s. And they did it in such a way that the, the size of the difference between dislike extremely and dislike very much dislike some white is exactly the same size. So it's a true nine-point scale of what it was if you were an American serviceman in the 1940s. Uh, subsequently to that, it's been used all over the world. It's been translated into every language you could possibly want. And it probably isn't quite as tight as it used to be. And actually, I think even in the United States, some of those words meaning have changed somewhat. Mm. And somebody really should sit down and do it again. But they did it on something like five or 6,000 GIs. And unless the Department of Defense cares, I don't think anybody else is going to care. So it's a nine-point scale. Usually. Okay. And for these descriptions, how do you get people to have the same idea of what they're describing? Okay, so now we're going from consumers, which is a totally, the consumer just has to say, I like it or I don't like it, Mm -hmm. or how much do I like it? So let's go back to the analytical side. So on the analytical side, there's a number of techniques we can use, but the the gold standard is something called descriptive analysis, Mm -hmm. where you basically train the panel to tell you everything about the product that you're interested in. So the first thing we need to do is we need to make sure that we all speak the same language. Mm -hmm. Because the first panel I ever trained, I had a 
a panelist out of I had 13 of them, and one of them told me this particular wine smelled like violets. The other 12 told me this wine was very high in blackberry. Now, under most conditions, I probably wouldn't have paid much attention, but this person was really important. So, so what you do is you bring in reference standards. So the next day I came back and I had uh, defrosted frozen blackberries, fresh blackberries, blackberry jam, and blackberry juice. So I had four types of blackberries so that my panel could tell me which one or which combination is closest to what they're smelling. And then on the violet side, I had violet soap, violet perfume, violet-flavored candies, and actual violets. These actual violets came from the then-chancellor's mailbox had violets <laughs> around it, and it happened to be spring. And so then you put these in, in black glasses so they can't see what they're smelling, but they can smell it. And so I started with my violet guy, and he said, no, 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 no. And I finally said, those are violets. And he said, no, it doesn't smell like violets to me. And I went, okay, I'm going to have to think about this. Then we, I said, okay, we're going to go to the blackberry side of things and see how that goes, and they'll come back to you. Handed him the frozen, defrosted blackberry in a glass, and he said, oh, those are violets. <laughs> and so he was smelling exactly the same thing. He yeah. just called it something else. Okay. So by having reference standards, we can make sure that everybody is on the same page here. Yeah. The other thing that reference standards give us, so my panel cold, whatever they were smelling in that wine, blackberries. But somebody else could have come along and said, you know, I actually think that smells like um, brambles. If you're British, they usually use the word bramble. And okay, now you have a reference standard. We used one defrosted blackberry from this company yep. in so much water or so much wine. So that person could now go get that frozen blackberry, put it in the same thing, stick their nose in there, oh, I guess it's the same thing as brambles. So it acts as a translation device to the rest of the world. Okay. So once everybody is on board and have this, so the way they get to these terms is we give them, usually in groups of two, the wines that we're going to be doing for that study. So let's say we have 10 wines. They'll have at least five sessions in which they will get two, two, two. Mm -hmm. And they will come up with all the terms that describe differences between the wines. If the wines are the same red color, red is not a good term. But if one is lighter red than the other one, then red is a good term. Okay. So they will come up with these. We will make reference standards for them. Sometimes we'll make six or seven for a specific odor. Sometimes we'll make one. And then they tell us what fits what they're talking about. And they do that through consensus. So once we've gone through all of the wines at least twice, we usually end up with a list of terms that we're going to rate with the reference standards. Then we test them. We actually give them blind reference standards and they have to tell us which one is which one. Okay. And if they're very if they're really trained, they do that about 95% accuracy. Oh wow. Which is perfectly fine. So then once they're done with that, then we put them in the booths and they get a set of wines, maybe five wines every day. And they score all of those terms in terms of intensity from not there to intensely there. They do this usually in triplicate. It's all blind. They don't know what's going on. And then that's the data we use to analyze and then tell you how these wines differ from each other, if they do. That's super fascinating. Yeah. And then uh, what about the differences between men and women and how they perceive? Okay, so... The generalization is that in general, women are better at perceiving odors. Women are better at discriminating 
small differences in odors, and women are better at naming odors. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that a specific woman is going to be better than a specific man, because it's on average. Um, It seems that the reason for that is estrogen. Really? So when women are in high-flux estrogen during ovulation or during pregnancy, they are more sensitive to odors, Mm, especially water-soluble odors, which are odors that will cross the the, into the placenta, into the womb. And so it's it's speculated that this was a way of keeping somebody from eating something that would kill off their fetus. Yeah. Um, when women are not high in estrogen, it's not as huge a difference, okay. if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, definitely. So yes, on average, women are better. A specific woman and a specific man, all bets are off. And then... Nowadays, do you find that the gender ratios in the, like, say, the wine industry has gotten better? Because you talked about yeah, your in past. our department, we actually have more women than men. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's hugely better. No, 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 no. Things have changed dramatically since okay. the seventies, even in South Africa. Okay, that's good. And I have a question about the descriptive, like the words that are chosen for the studies. How does that transfer over to what gets marketed to the consumer? Sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. So if you look at the backside of a wine bottle, frequently they'll say the wine is reminiscent of of Mm. blackberries and cedar chest and things like that. Now that could have come, if the winery is large enough, they may have a sensory facility and that could have come from their sensory people. If the winery is small, it probably came from the imagination of the winemaker. Okay. (laughs) That's super funny. And then these same processes are for other types of drinks, say coffee and tea. Yeah, these processes actually is used pretty universally. So it's used in the wine industry. It's used in every beverage industry you can talk about. I used to say that if you go to the grocery store, everything in the grocery store except the fresh produce had seen a sensory scientist. Really? At this point, even the fresh produce starts seeing a sensory scientist. So places like Driscoll Berries have a sensory Mm -hmm. scientist on, on staff. So it's getting less likely that they've not seen a sensory scientist. Um, we all personal care products have seen sensory scientists, whether that's diapers or deodorant or toilet tissue. All of that sees a sensory scientist. We know that the European car manufacturers all use sensory science, and we know that because they send their uh, sensory scientists to our meetings. Really. We assume that the American car manufacturers do the same thing, but we don't know that because we don't see their people at our meetings, at least not identified as working for a specific mm-hmm. car manufacturer. And you're talking about at UC Davis specifically? No, at meetings, sensory meetings okay. worldwide. Okay. Well, and then what are, for the car manufacturers, mm-hmm. what are they like trying so to- So they're looking at things like, what does it feel when you put your hand on the brake? Does it feel spongy or does it go hard? What do you want it to feel like, depending on the style of car that you drive? Yeah. What does it sound like when you slam the door? Yeah. What do you want it to sound like? I mean, so they're doing both the analytical side is what does it feel like? And then do people like it when it's doing X and Y? Um, how does the seat feel when you mm-hmm. sit in it? What does it smell like? What does it feel like? Um, what does the, 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 the steering wheel feel like? Is it smaller? Is it bigger? Is it thicker? Is it thinner? Is it covered with something? And depending on the car type, that's going to change. Yeah. 
That's super interesting. It's interesting, yeah. We talked about the differences between men and women. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about hypo and hyper tasters? Hyper tasters? Okay, so in the the journalists will usually talk about super tasters and non tasters, mm-hmm. which I don't particularly like because super in the American parlance tends to mean better than and actually. Mm-hmm. They're just different from. Mm-hmm. Um, so hypo tasters are people who don't really taste a compound called um, PTC, phenylthiourea, or probe, which is a, a thyroid medication. Hyper tasters or super tasters are incredibly sensitive to these two compounds. Um, just essentially nothing will make them go, oh, this is intensely bitter. And then there are people in between who say, it's bitter, but it's not so bad. And They've known this since the early 20th century for PTC, phenylthiourea. And actually, anthropologists used it to try to determine how people moved across the Pacific Ocean pre-European um, uh, uh, contact, because different um, ethnicities have different levels of sensitivity to this, different percentages. Some ethnicities, it's 90 plus percent, and other it's 5 or 6 percent. So they're trying to use this to sort of figure out where people came from across the Pacific. The problem with this is that compound is uh, carcinogenic, and you cannot do that. Um, but now they use this uh, probe, uh, which is a propyl thiourosyl, which is used as a medication for thyroids. Mm-hmm. But the quantities you need to study it is much, 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 much lower than the quantities you need for therapeutic levels so it can be used. We don't do that at this university, but other universities do. And so then you put people in boxes, and it tends that people who are very, very sensitive to this compound have a lot more um, taste buds on their tongue because they have a lot more papillae on their tongue. And if you have more taste buds and more papillae, you have more pain nerves on your tongue. And so you perceive textures in the mouth differently from somebody who doesn't taste this compound. Mm-hmm. And for a long, there's been a lot of work done on this. We now know it's genetic. It's three amino acids in the receptor cell for, bit, for a specific bitter receptor that's different for the people the people for whom it's very s- intense have both of the alleles those three and the people for whom it's not have the opposite three and then the people in between are sort of a mixture of those two things okay. it's not the only thing out there that this is true for um w- for odors it's the same thing some of us are every single one of us are overly sensitive to one or more odors and totally non-sensitive to other odors because mm-hmm. you just didn't get the receptors or we didn't the receptor is broken in quotes because of the amino acids that had been substituted and it's not actually functional so there's more and more of that stuff that's coming out is and it's really interesting because yeah. it makes it makes us all different yeah no it's fascinating does the Sensitivity to that one specific mm-hmm. compound translate over into you're going to taste these different things differently. Yeah, in general, and this again, generalizations yeah. are hard because humans are hard. In general, people who are very sensitive to probe tend to not like cruciferous vegetables, Brussels sprouts, radicchio, um, cabbage. They find them intensely bitter. They tend not to like alcohol because the alcohol is really burny to them, mm. whereas to the rest of it's kind of there. They also find it very bitter. They tend to, if they're female, um, be underweight or normal weight and tend not to like fat. I am clearly not, 
a, a non-taster. Um, and then they also have some textural issues where they don't like certain grittiness levels in their mouth. Mm. So my husband is a super taster, and I can pretty much tell you by looking at something, he's not going to like that, because <laughs> he's not going to like the feeling of it. Now, just because you don't like it doesn't mean you're not going to eat it, because we're human, right? We mm -hmm. can choose to go outside of our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying super tasters tend not to like alcohol, but the same percentage of super tasters drink alcohol as non-tasters. <laughs> they just choose to do it mm -hmm. okay. over, in fact, that they don't like it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we we do have some differences due to that. And can they adapt to those changes? They just, every well, they basically consciously make the decision that it's okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah. They still find it much more bitter. They still find it much hotter. But, you know, this is the life they've de dealt with. This cost. is what they're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then would they be better or worse for these studies trying They're to just identify? Different. Just different. It doesn't matter. Okay. Because, so we happen to know that there are super tasters mm. or, and non-tasters for this compound and there's these other things. But as I just said, every one of us smells something different. Mm. And so when I have a group of 15 people, I have 15 people who come there with differences in how they smell things, how they taste things, and how they see things. By having 15 people, I average out those differences. Okay. And so if you are, a, say, a, in my case, for example, I can't taste bitter from caffeine. Okay, I don't yeah. have that receptor. And so if you give me coffee, to me it's sour. It's not bitter. I happen to know what bitter is because we have about 25, 26 bitter receptors, and I have one that's functional for peptides. Wow. So I know what, it, what bitter is. Coffee is not bitter. So if I'm on a panel and we're doing coffee, I just score all the coffee zero when I get to bitterness. Okay. And somebody else will score, and somebody else may be extremely sensitive to bitter, and so they may score them much higher. Well, my zero and their much higher probably gets to about where everybody else's scores are. Uh, and that's why you want to have more than one person so you yeah. can deal with these things. How much of those differences in perception are quantifiable? You can usually see if somebody is totally does not have the receptor for whatever X is. Mm -hmm. So in my case, the reason I found, I mean, I was 20, probably 25 years old when I found I couldn't taste better. I drank coffee all my life. I didn't quite understand when people talked about decaf coffee being different from coffee coffee because they both tasted the same to me, but you know, what the heck. Um, so I had a colleague in the lab I was doing my PhD who was working on caffeine bitterness. Mm -hmm. And she was looking for panelists. And one of the things she needed to know is where your threshold for caffeine was, because it's different even for people who can taste it, may need more in one case and less in another case. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting in the booth and she's giving me water samples. So I, they do that to sort of get things calibrated and keep you honest. And I'm drinking, drinking and spitting, drinking and spitting, water sample after water sample. And finally I opened the, the door and I said, could you just give me some caffeine? And she looked at me and she said, I just gave you the mother solution, <laughs> which was hugely. And I looked at her and I said, oh, and she said, you're not on my panel. <laughs> yeah, so I, that's when I found out I couldn't taste it. Because okay. you know, we can go through life not knowing these things yeah. because it, we don't usually pay attention. And then are there genetic tests now for these? Yes, for some of them, there are genetic tests. And actually, uh, Penn State University, John Hayes, who's a faculty member mm -hmm. there, is doing a lot of the work 
combining the genetics to what actually happens in the perception. Okay, that's awesome. And could we talk a little bit about like the ability to taste and training that ability? Okay. So obviously we train panelists to be on our panels, right? Yeah. And I've been doing this since 1981. So I've been doing it a long time. And in that time, I have never found somebody who is not trainable mm-hmm. if they want to be there. The key is they want to learn. It's the same with everything else in life. If you want to learn to ride a bike, you will learn to ride a bike. Mm-hmm. If you want to learn how to pay attention to your nose and your eyes and your mouth, you will. If you don't want to, I can't force you to do it. So yeah, we, we can all get better at it. And then do you think there's a inherent ability with some people to be a lot better or not a lot. Yeah, some people start better. Yes, yeah. there are some people, the same way that you have perfect pitch in music, mm-hmm. there are some people who just have really great noses. Yeah. And uh, But they will also get better if with training. Yeah. And then there are people who kind of bumble through life with their nose in their mouth, and yet they will also get better. Do you yeah. think they'll be able they to get They probably won't. Well, they may. Okay. You know, I, I'm not going to say no. Okay. Could you talk us through some of the best tasting methods to get the most out of a wine? Okay, the first key is you have to have a glass that is tulip-shaped, where the rim of the glass is narrower than the body of the glass. It doesn't actually matter what the glass is. It just needs to look like a tulip, if that makes sense. And then you don't want to fill the glass too high because you want to be able to swirl it. You don't want it to come out while you're swirling it. The reason for swirling it is by moving it in the air like that, you're volatilizing more of the volatile compounds in the in the wine. And so when you stick your nose on there, you're going to get more of the odors mm-hmm. than you would if you just had it sit there. And try this at home. You could do this, have a glass, same amount of liquid in it, just sitting in one that you swirled. And the mm-hmm. one that you swirled is going to have more than the one that you didn't. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you swirl it while having it closed on the top, you're going to have even more because now that stuff that's volatilizing is going to get trapped in the in the mm. glass itself. Mm. You can do this by having two glasses on top of each other when you're swirling them, or you can, if your hands don't smell of anything, <laughs> you can just put your hand on top and swirl it, and you can find it. So that's that's why you want the tulip shape because it traps more of the volatiles so they don't come screaming out. Okay. So that's the first thing you want to do. For sensory work, we taste everything at room temperature because at that point we get the most volatiles. If Mm. the colder the wine is, the less you're going to smell, the more difficult it is. Mm -hmm. So doing things at room temperature makes things easier. It also keeps it, it's easier for us because we don't have to control temperature. We can just live with room temperature. And so I frequently at home will drink things at room temperature because I want to smell what it smells like. After that, there's really not a lot of other things that are crucial. And then, so if there's not a lot of other things that are crucial, why are some of the practices at these wineries like so extreme or someone who's like really trying to get into it have like- Such as which? I just, all the different shapes and glasses, all the different, like my buddy who owns Mm -hmm. a winery, he will specifically choose his wines for that glass and 
he'll try the same wine in two different glasses and get and they will be different. They will be different. So here's the deal: at my house, Mm -hmm. we have one wine glass, and we pour everything in that wine glass. I made the decision: I'd rather have thirty of the same wine glass than six different sets of wine glasses. Yes, if you have different shaped wine glasses, you're going to get slightly different amounts of volatilization. And you can tell the difference. It, if I give you three wine glasses, with the same wine, mm-hmm. you're going to tell the difference. That difference, however, is not so big that it's going to change how you feel about that wine. Okay. okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You know, by using the perfect glass, I'm not suddenly going to have a wine that you're going to like nine out of nine versus a wine in a non-perfect glass, as long as it's tulip-shaped, that you're going to dislike extremely. It's not going to happen. You may be going from an eight and a half to a nine, maybe. You Mm -hmm. may just still be at a nine. So, yes, there are perceptible differences. We can pick them up under controlled conditions, but they don't really matter. Now, why do people do this? There's an entire marketing world out there telling you <laughs> that you need 50 different wine glasses at $50 a glass and, 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 and. Yeah. I mean, we, we like doing these things. We like making it. And it's beautiful. I mean, you sit down at a table and there's 10 different glasses and 10 different glass shapes. And it's, it feels very fancy because it is. I mean, it costs somebody a fortune to have yeah. those glasses there. But it's not materially from a wine perspective going to change what those wines are like. How much you're going to like the wine? Mm-hmm. It may change how you feel about the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, they've spent all this money on all these glasses. The wines must be really good. Yeah. But that's a totally different piece. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. And with the wine, once you open it, mm-hmm. we're talking about like what changes, is it best to finish the bottle then, or can you still close it back up and have it maintain some of that taste? If you if you have a very old wine. Mm-hmm. 25, 30, 40 years old, it's probably not going to survive getting closed and re-drunk. But if you have a wine of that age, you're probably trying to show it off anyway, and you're probably going to drink all of it. Mm -hmm. If you have a reasonably young wine, 10 years or so, 15 years, put the cork back in, or put a stopper in it, whatever you have, shove it in the refrigerator, and it'll be fine for up to seven days. Okay. And we've done this, we did a research study on this about 15 years ago. And we tried all the versions that you could have, you know, stoppers, corks, refrigerators, um, fancy equipment and all the rest of it. And fancy equipment works really well, but shoving the cork back in and putting it in the refrigerator works just as well. Yeah, perfect. And does glass shape, does that matter for other alcoholic beverages like beer, whiskeys? Um, this is outside of my okay. experience, but it seems to me at least that whiskeys are s- drunk in straight glasses, so maybe mm-hmm. they don't care as much. There's maybe that there's so much volatilization that it doesn't that it actually helps if some of it disappears okay. before you put your nose in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that for sure because this is not my field. Beer seems to come in a million different glasses. Yeah. I mean, some of them are shaped outwards, some of them are shaped inwards, some of them are bulgy. So you know, I I also would prefer not to go there. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. <laughs> And then, do you guys ever look at the environment and how that changes perception? Oh, yeah. So, like, for like context. Exactly. Context. Yes, context is enormous and it's really difficult to study in a, in a lab mm-hmm. because context is context and it's not. Yeah. So, one of the things that's happening on this campus is that my colleague next to me, 
Julian Delarue, mm-hmm. is a consumer sensory scientist. He okay. works on consumer responses. And context makes a difference with consumers, not with trained panels, because their context is a sensory booth that's really boring. Um, he has created something called an immersive room, mm-hmm. where you can actually change the space by showing a 360 camera view of whatever you want to. Okay, yeah. And then you can actually change the temperature in there. You can have a breeze in there. You can have it spit rain if you need to. You can change the smells of it. And that sort of context will show us what changes. So that's yeah. the science researchy part of it. But for the rest of us, as consumers, we've all had the experience where you go somewhere and you have a wine and you absolutely adore the wine. Yeah. And then it's usually for me when I'm traveling and then at great hassles, I, I drag this bottle of wine <laughs> home. And then one of two things happen when I get home. Either I open the bottle and I go, what was so exciting about this wine? And I remember, yeah, I was in, you know, I was sitting on the the coast of France and all of this stuff and having oysters. Or sometimes I open the wine and it puts me back there. Okay. Mm. So both of those things have happened to me. I've had wines where I've drugged them home and I'm like, what was the point here? And others where I open them, I go, oh yeah, this is exactly what it felt like when I, but it's not the wine then, it's my mind taking me back to that context. And context makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting because my buddy who owns the winery, his other friend in the region said they just did a study at their winery about what music they they play in the tasting room and how that impacts consumers. Yeah, gives you context. Yeah, yeah. And another like thing pairing off of context is how does food choices play into picking a wine? Not as much as you think. Okay, can I say that? Yeah. Um, There's a whole world out there about the right food to pair with the right wine and all that sort of stuff. I see that as a party trick and as something that I would suggest you do for fun, uh-huh. but that you don't stress about it. Okay, Because the problem is, because we have this whole thing out there, normal consumers get really freaked out. You know, I'm going to make this fish. And now I have to have the exact right wine to go with this fish. And people stress to Instagram. And then in the end, they just give you beer because it's easier. They don't think about the, <laughs> the wine that goes with the fish. Whereas in reality, what happens is, first of all, the way we eat and drink is we never have, unless we're weird, we don't have the wine and the food in our mouth at the same time. I mean, you, most of us don't take a bite of food and then pour wine after it. We take a bite of food, chew it up, swallow it. Maybe have a, a sip of water, pick up the wine glass, play with the wine glass, smell it, taste some wine, enjoy that, put it down. Maybe have another swallow of water, maybe not. Have another bite of wine, of, of fish. So we're it, there's time between these things, right? They're not mm-hmm. on top of each other. When we do research on wine food pairings, we have done it where there's time, and we've done it where we actually put made them take the food in their mouth and the wine in their mouth at the same time. And what we see is the normal things that happen. When you, for example, add sugar to your coffee, you're adding the sugar to decrease the perception of bitterness. Mm-hmm. If you had tasted that sugar in water, it would have been sweeter too, because the bitter decreased the sweetness. So they both decreased okay. when you put it in the coffee. 
when we have a really astringent wine and you have a very fatty piece of meat, the fat minimizes the astringency because it decreases the astringency. So those same sorts of things happen when we have wine and food. Mm -hmm. Really astringent wine and we have some fatty meat, they both get less fatty and less astringent. But they don't become non-astringent and they don't Mm -hmm. become non-fatty. It just decreases it. I can show this in a lab, but I don't know that the person in a restaurant is actually going to notice that. Okay. So there are some decreases. There are very few increases. And people always talk about wine food matching as being the nirvana. When you have this food and this wine, it's going to be, ooh, ooh. <laughs> From a sensory perspective, that doesn't actually happen. But that doesn't mean that the brain may not go, this combination and that combination mm. is perfect. Yeah. But again, I think it's context-driven. That makes a lot of sense. The, so for me, what I tell people when they talk about wine food pairings are, if you like the food and you like the wine, the two things will go together, no matter what anybody else is telling you. So if you want to drink sparkling wine with your beef burgundy, because you <laughs> love sparkling wine and you love beef burgundy, you are going to be just fine. Yes. Similarly, the way I look at it is when we furnish our houses, we don't go to a furniture store and buy absolutely everything that matches. Well, maybe some people do, but they don't have, you know, most of us buy things in pieces right, yeah. over years. And so we end up with stuff that are not from the same style, not from the same era, not even from the same colors. But we end up with stuff because you liked it when you saw it in the store and you liked everything else in your house. Mm-hmm. And guess what? They go together. Yeah. Same with food. So I, you know... I've been at meals where we had six or seven wines for the courses, and I fell in love with the white wine we had for the appetizer, and I just drank it for the rest of the evening. Um, I've had meals where somebody tells me they really, really like this style of wine, and that's what we had for dinner that night, because I'd rather have my company feel comfortable with what they have than forcing them into drinking things that match. Yeah. And then have you ever had an experience where the someone or someone comes up to you and says like these all these different things are going on and then you taste it and you're like Yes. This is in it. Like you're just selling me a wine. Like yes, that does happen. And and it and, and, and you get psalms and psalms, let's face it. Some mm-hmm. of them are better than others. Um I don't particularly enjoy being told what I'm going to experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't mind being told where the thing came from, why it's important, why it's exciting. But I am not you, and I'm most definitely not the sommelier. Mm-hmm. I like going to dinners where there's wine included as a wine pairing thing. I usually oh. buy, you know, if I have a tasting menu, I'll usually buy the up charge for the, the wine. Mm-hmm. N- mostly just to see what the psalm is doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not because I think that's the only wine that would have gone with whatever I'm eating, but it's kind of interesting to see where the psalm is coming from. What are they picking to go with these things? However, the problem is he could have chosen probably 100 other wines for each one of those courses, and they would have been just as interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it's not as if there's one magical wine. There is many wines, mm-hmm. depending on what you're looking for, price point, and all of those things. And then what would be some of those 
thought processes that he's going through. So he is probably, or she, I yeah, mean, there yeah, are yeah. female songs as well. Um, what they go through is they try to make sure that they don't have too big a clash between the flavors in the food and the flavors in the wine. So if you have, say, a very acidic, pickled course of some description, you don't want a very acid wine to go with that, because the two acids will make each other more acid. On the other end, I think that would actually be a very interesting combination, but we'll stay with what they think. Um, they would also, if you have a very heavy um, meal, they'll try to pick a wine that's pretty forceful, so it doesn't get swamped out in the meal itself. But again, you may you could break that rule and kind of go in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so they look at sort of what the food is and what they have in their wines, and they try to balance things out. And what are some good principles for people that are ignorant to tasting wine to just think about when they're drinking wine? Okay, so first thing you want to do is is and I tell this to all students is do I like it? And, you know, in the days that we all still had checkbook stubs in our bags, I would tell them to write on their checkbook stubs, you know, the thing that came with the checkbook, this is the wine, I liked it. This is the wine, I hated it. And then over time, they would start seeing, every time I hated it, it was a red, it was a Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm -hmm. Every time I loved it, it was a Zinfandel or something along those lines. Now you've at least figured out where you like Mm -hmm. Now you can start saying, okay, I really seem to like Zinfandels. Let me start looking at Zinfandels and trying to figure out why I like them. Okay. Are they jammy? Do I like the jamminess of them? Do I like this about them? Do I like the fact that there's a lot of alcohol in here? And now you start writing on a checkbook stub all the words that come to mind when you taste this thing. And over time, you're going to say, okay, that's why I like this wine. Mm -hmm. And you're going to come up with wines in your price range that you really like. And hopefully, once you figure out your Zinfandel story, you'll try some other wines and go through the same process again. Now, I think, I guess you could probably make notes on your phone mm -hmm. yeah, and get uh -huh. to the same place. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a consciously going through it. And you don't have to be, you don't have to get serious because this is not for research. You just need to come up with words that make sense to you. Mm -hmm. You know, my husband, when I first met him, Loved wines that smell basement-y. <laughs> um, it was quite a sad day when he realized that that was actually a flaw. Um, because prior to that, he loved them. He still does. But it really is a flaw. You're not supposed to have your wine smell like the basement. But whenever we have a wine that has that flaw, guess where it goes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, and he's not a wine person. This is not his thing. He loves wine. He loves tasting wine. He loves going out to dinners and he enjoys wine, but it's not his thing. Mm -hmm. And through the years, I know sort of the things he likes. And so I sort of yeah. make sure that those are there. And then could you maybe touch on like just a couple of the more pr prominent compounds in the wines that like impact how it tastes? So Okay. Probably the most important one is the alcohol, mm -hmm. the, um, the acids. Yeah. And then if you've got a red wine, the tannins, mm -hmm. the astringency. So in many ways, the stuff, once you put it in your mouth, because all of those things happen in your mouth, the mouth, uh, alcohol has a mouthfeel, mm -hmm. it burns. Mm -hmm. uh, the tannins are both uh, astringent and they make your tongue and your teeth kind of dry. Yeah. And they also bitter. Yeah. And then the acid is sour. That all happens in your mouth. In the nose, um, you can also smell alcohol. 
Yeah. So you can usually say there's a, so there's a, there's an odor to alcohol and a mouthfeel to alcohol. Um, the others are pretty much all in the mouth. Okay. Um, beyond that, you've got the different odorants or volatile compounds that make a Cabernet different, say, from a sure. Zinfandel. But they're not hugely different. It's there's about 450, 500 volatile compounds in a red wine, mm -hmm. and it's the um, relative amounts that make the difference. In most cases, not the fact that there's ten of these in, in a Cabernet and none of those in a Zinfandel. It's just that the relative amounts, in most cases, are somewhat different. And so there's not a huge odor differences okay. between varieties. There is because mm. we can tell them differently. But I can also give you a Cabernet that smells like a Zinfandel and a Zinfandel that smells like a Cabernet. Mm -hmm. But the most biggest drivers are what happens in the mouth. Yeah. Because, quite frankly, it's now in, it is in you. It is mm. in your mouth. When you're still smelling it, you can still put it away. Now it's in your mouth. Now you better like it or else mm -hmm. it's problematic. Yeah. And could you describe or rather define tannins? Where those come tannins from? are compounds made up out of catechin and epicatechin and a bunch of other stuff. And they're very large molecules. Mm -hmm. So much so that we don't actually know what in most what is in most tannins. We can break oh. them down into their individual pieces, but exactly how they all go together mm -hmm. is it's like it's like the elephant being seen by a blind man. We have bits, <laughs> but we don't have all the yeah. things. It's they come out of the skins and the seeds of of grapes. And so, yeah, if you ferment on the skins, you get more tannins. If you ferment on the uh, the seeds, you have more tannins. If you want to know what a tannin tastes like, um, chomping on a grape seed is a good place place to start. Yeah. The other, if you want to know what astringency is, chomping into a raw, uh, unripe banana will give you some really good astringency. Okay. That's super interesting. Because it's not bitter. The problem is yeah. that most other astringents are bitter as well, and then people get confused between astringency and bitterness, and unripe bananas are not bitter. They're sour and astringent. Okay. Just, and then if we think of like the acidity causing these outcomes or the tannins causing like the chalky mouthfeel, why have them at all? Like what, what could you talk about the balancing act? Okay, so if you take so if you take the if you have a red wine a red wine and you take the tannins out, you kind of have a red colored white wine. It's <laughs> kind of like, why am I doing this? Um and so the key is you need to have in if you're making a red wine enough tannins, enough acidity, mm -hmm. enough alcohol, so that all three of these things, maybe a little bit of sweetness depending on how expensive the wine was, that they all balance together and your mouth goes, Oh, this is a happy place. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't want things sticking out. Yeah. Whereas, and so in, in the case of a white wine, we don't have, usually have tannins because we don't ferment on the skins. Mm -hmm. There we pretty much only have the acidity, the alcohol, and maybe the sweetness to give us the same happy place. Yeah. And then when you talk about sweetness, are you talking about additives? I'm talking about sugar. I'm mm -hmm. talking about glucose and fructose. Mm -hmm. um, grape berries have a lot of that. If you pick at 25 bricks, you have 25% of the solution is either is a combination of glucose and fructose. That gets fermented by the yeast into alcohol. You can either have residual sugar by stopping the fermentation mm -hmm. and then keeping everything sterile from that point onward so that it won't re-ferment, or you can ferment to dryness. 
Mm. which means there's no sugar left, no fermentable sugar left. And then you can add sugar back in the form of grape juice concentrate. Again, glucose and fructose. That makes sense. And how do blended wines work? Let's say you want to make a Zinfandel. But your Zinfandel this year, if you sell it as 100% Zinfandel, is really, really, really tannic. Mm -hmm. Pretty unbalanced. But you happen to have some Pinot Noir that you made that doesn't have a lot of tannins. So now you can blend some of the Pinot Noir into the Zinfandel and cut that astringency and come up with a better wine. Okay. As lo- U.S. rules of law says that as long as you already uh, still have 75% Zinfandel in that blend, you can still call it a Zinfandel. Okay. Interesting. Uh, and the rest of the world is usually 85%. And there's are places in the U.S. where it's 100%, but in general it's 75%. So that's what blending means. It's that you're taking more than one to make a better outcome than you started with. You could also be, say, only a Pinot Noir producer, but you get Pinot Noir grapes from different parcels of vineyards. Mm -hmm. So you ferment all of those separately, and then when you're ready to to bottle, you decide you're going to use 10% of this one and 20% of that one and 30%. Mm -hmm. You create a single Pinot Noir blend out of all these parcels. Mm -hmm. Or you may sell that blend, and then you may also sell the parcels indiv- individually as vineyard designations. Yeah. So those are the reasons you blend. Okay. And then you just talked about like different geographies there. Could <laughs> you expand on maybe why some places are so much more famous for certain types of wine? Or It is a combination of the climate and the soil, mm-hmm. and sometimes the market hype. <laughs> um, so yeah, so certain places like the Rheingau of Germany is very famous for Riesling because of the climate and the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, the northern part of the South Island of New Zealand, Marlborough, is famous for their Sauvignon Blanc. Mm-hmm. In that case, it's more the style that they're making than the climate and the soil, but that's where they happen to make that style the first time. Okay. So it's differences in locations yeah. do make a difference in what the wine tastes like. So if I grow a Cabernet in Napa, and I grow the same Cabernet clone in Bakersfield, I'm going to sell the Bakersfield grapes for two, $300 a ton, and I'm going to sell the Napa ones for $15,000 to $20,000 a ton mm-hmm. because Bakersfield, I don't get as much color, I, I get much more sugar, I don't get as, not, as much flavor, I don't get any acidity. Napa, I get some of those positive things in larger quantities. Yeah. So there's a difference there, but the difference is probably not three hundred to fifteen thousand. The real difference in terms of grape quality is probably closer. Mm. Let's say maybe two three hundred to two thousand. Mm-hmm. But then Napa also has a marketing advantage. Yep. So yes, the grapes are different, mm-hmm. but there's sometimes more than the grapes. And then could you also tell us about why you don't like the use of terroir? I don't like the use of terroir because people tend to get very snobby about the whole thing. I do not disagree that there are differences in places. And so I like to use regionality. Mm -hmm. The regions are different from each other. Terroir means more than just the region. Terroir theoretically should also mean the people who work on the land, the other ecological factors in the land, and but people lose sight of that, and they basically just use it as regionality. Mm. So let's just call it regionality, and we don't have to get all stuffy about it. <laughs> That's fun. 
And we talked about Napa. Could you speak on the wildfires and how that impacted the vineyards? Um, horrifically. Um, in general, for the fires in the last few years, vineyards have usually not burned because there was enough moisture in the vineyards, so they get scarred on the outside, but they didn't burn. But the problem is, if you still had your grapes on there, they got smoke tainted because mm -hmm. the the smoke that we all had to live with, those grapes had to live with, and the smoke is toxic to the grape. So the grape takes that smoke volatiles and turns it into a glucoside. It adds a glucose onto the end of the volatile, which mm. makes it non-volatile. So now you can't actually smell it anymore. However, when you start doing the fermentation, the yeast chomps off that glucose. Now you can smell it some again. It doesn't chomp off all of those. So there's a lot of non-volatile grape volatile stuck to glucose in the final product. About 30% of us have enzymes in our saliva that will cleave off that glucose. Oh, okay. And so we put that wine in our mouth and we go, oh, it smells like it, it tastes like an ashtray. Somebody who doesn't have that enzyme is going, it's okay. Huh. And so it, there's so many things that we don't know about how, how this happens, what happens, and in general, we can't fix it yet. Yeah, because my buddy was talking about how some people are claiming that you can, through certain processes, remove it. Nope. Not not well enough to make a wine that's still of the quality you started. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the most important thing, arguably, is keeping that quality. Yes. And, and that's why we need to come to terms with climate change so we don't have to deal with this. Yeah. Could you expand on what climate change is, how that's impacting? It is making, well, from a wine perspective, it's making um, things warmer and warmer. Mm -hmm. And the warmer it is, the less quality of the grapes. So, for example, um, 40 years ago in Burgundy, it was a lot cooler and you could grow really fantastic Pinot Noirs. Now, some years it's too hot. You just can't do it. Mm -hmm. But the Germans in northern Germany can now grow fantastic Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. which 30 years ago they could never hope to ripen. Actually, the Swedes are growing grapes and making good wow. wine. Wow. The English are growing grapes and making good wine. And none of those places could do so before. So that's the problem with climate change, is it's pushing the envelope north mm -hmm. in, in the northern hemisphere. And so, yeah, if we keep going the way we're going, Napa is not going to be Napa, it's going to be southern Oregon. Yeah. Very interesting. That's around Glass's vineyard. <laughs> yeah. Is there such a thing as indoor farming or indoor for grapes, cultivation for grapes? Not yet, no. Is that going to It would be horrifyingly expensive because you plant the grapes and you can't get any crop for five years. Yeah. So you're going to have to spend five years of doing all the indoor stuff. Yeah. And so the indoor farming that is making money are things like greens <laughs> and mm. vegetables where you can turn quickly. Yeah, super interesting. And then when you're going back to the smoke and the wildfires, mm -hmm. does that not impact the vines at all? It's just the grapes? It seems not to. It seems not to. So the leaves also get those toxins in them and they do the same thing. They put a glucose on them, but they fall off. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so it doesn't actually make any difference. It, because it sort of detoxifies them mm -hmm. by adding the glucose onto them, it doesn't cause any damage to the yeah. plant. And that's the whole point. That's why the plant does this, is to try to protect itself. And it doesn't seem to make a difference. Yeah. 
And then you just talked about the leaves, made me remember something else I heard is the number of leaves corresponding to the better or different grape outcomes. Have you seen any research on this? The only one I know of is the rose taint study that that just came out of Washington State. And that is where they, if you have too many dried grape leaves in your fermentation, then you get this very rosy smell, which is not a positive. Mm. Um, so there's something about the leaves, these dry leaves that cause this rose odor. But that's only you don't want leaves in your you don't want leaves yeah. in your fermentation. We call that MOG mm-hmm. MOG okay. matter other than grape. Yeah, and most of the time MOG is, is is leaves, but it could also be depending on how you're harvesting. It could actually be mice and knives and all wow. kinds of other stuff. Yeah, but in most cases, it's just leaves. But uh, so, what about leaves while it's on the plant? Have you seen? So, when you on the plant, you have to have enough leaves to mm-hmm. ripen what you need to, but you don't want so many leaves. If you if all of your plant's energy goes into growing leaves, mm-hmm. then it doesn't have a lot of energy to ripen the grapes. On the other hand, you have to you can't take the leaves away and think there's going to be any ripening because you need the mm-hmm. photosynthesis from the leaves to do the ripening for you. So there's a, a balancing act between how many leaves you have and how large your bunches are. Yeah. I found that super fascinating because my buddy was telling me Every vine, 14 leaves, period. That's okay. So in their yeah. particular system, that works. Yeah. That's not necessarily true oh, in all sure. places for all things. Yeah. 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 And for wine, could you give a broad, I guess, timeline of, you know, once the vineyard or the vines are planted, mm-hmm. what, how long is it going to take until a bottle of wine is Well, available? it takes four years before you can start harvesting mm-hmm. so that you can get it established. And then depending on what you're making, it can be another number of years. If you're making a white wine that's supposed to be drunk very young, Mm -hmm. you could probably get your first harvest off at five years and and the bottle and out the door. If you're making a red wine that you then want to oak age for another three or four years, we're probably at 10 years, depending. Mm -hmm. And then the average age is usually viewed as 25 years. Um, That's usually where people start making decisions about whether they should pull it out and start over or not. okay. Yeah. And then could you give us some insight on why people have the belief that an old wine is a better wine? Old wine is a better wine. Okay. So I personally am not an aficionado of very old wines. Mm -hmm. To me, very old wines tend to remind me of soy sauce, marmite, and artichoke water. (laughs) None of these are really great (laughs) terms. On the other hand, I have to say, if you open a bottle from 1976, I think back to 1976, and I, you know, it, 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 it's like wow, wow. Um, but there are people who love old wines. I have a, a friend in Australia who absolutely, the older the wine, and the more I don't find it positive. It's just a, it's a personal choice thing, mm-hmm. and for him, it's something fantastic. For me, not so much. So, what's changing in the wine as the wine ages? It oxidizes because mm-hmm. the the cork or the seat, this even if you use screw caps, is not impervious to oxygen. So mm. over time, oxygen gets into the bottle, and you get oxidation reactions. You also get just normal chemical reactions. They go slowly at room temperature, but if you have 20, 30, 40 years, you're going to get esters breaking down, binding to other things, mm. forming new flavor compounds. There's very slow chemical reactions that happen in the bottle. And did you say that was the same with a cork cap or a seal cap? It's faster with a cork 
than it is with a with a screw cap mm-hmm. because uh, corks have more oxygen ingress mm-hmm. than screw caps. Although you can now buy screw caps that are designed to be more like a cork. Huh. So depending on what your winemaker wants. Yeah, that's super interesting. So kind of wrapping up here, a fun little question: like If you were going to be set out to, you're going to open a winery, you want to make the best wine. Mm-hmm. What steps are you going to be taking? Oh my. First of all, win the lottery. <laughs> because, you know, starting a winery in Napa, they say to make a small fortune in Napa wineries, you have to start with a very large fortune. Um, and that's pretty true mm-hmm. worldwide. It's not an easy job. It's not an easy start. So let's assume I have lots of money. And I assume somebody else is going to sell this wine because that's the hardest thing to do. Mm. Um, I would probably try to find a location that is exciting but not oversold. Mm-hmm. Southern Oregon would probably be on my list, to be really honest. Uh, 25 years ago, parts of Washington State would be on my list. Um, so I'd probably go to somewhere where it's not currently the in thing, but it's sort of heading in that direction. Buy some land that seems reasonable, and then talk to everybody and their brother about which things to grow. That's great. But I never want to make wine. <laughs> <laughs> Just want to taste it? Just want to taste it. <laughs> yeah. In the spirit of tasting, do you have any advice for people on how to go about kind of buying wines, especially at a lower price point, like what regions to look for, <laughs> things like that? Okay, so when you look at buying wine, set a budget that you can afford. That could be $15, that could be $20, that could be whatever it is. And then go to a place where there's a large selection and buy some wines in that price category. I probably would not send, let's just say make it 20, just make it easy. I would not set a $20 budget and try to buy Napa or Sonoma or even most of California just because the prices are not going to work for for at the quality levels. Um, if you want to have sort of wines that were made by smaller wineries. If you want to buy from larger wineries, 20 is going to get you a pretty nice wine from Gallo. It's going to get you a reasonably nice wine from Constellation. But I'm assuming you want to try things that are not out, that are out of the mainstream here. Mm-hmm. So I would go to a place like Total Wine and look at their non-California, probably European sections. Mm-hmm. Austria, Germany, Southern or Spain, Portugal, and buy wines in the price category that I'm looking at and trying them mm-hmm. and then finding out what you like. So my husband, pre-COVID, so we haven't done this since COVID, but, and I would go to the Total Wine, and, well, there's three of them in Sacramento, one of them in Sacramento, and to stock up our everyday drinking wine. And we'd each take a, a, 12, a case of 12, and the one who got the closest to $240 <laughs> or the le- less amount got taken out for lunch by the other one. <laughs> and so if you buy something expensive, you better buy some really cheap things too. <sighs> and yeah, you know, I'm willing at this point in my life to pour out $20 if it's really horrible. But luckily my husband will usually drink whatever is really horrible <laughs> anyway. So that's uh, the only way to learn is to try things. Mm-hmm. And because California tends to be very expensive, especially in Napa, I would probably not start there because it's just not, the, the, the money doesn't work out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. 
Do you have any other advice for students who are looking to get into either sensory science or the wine industry? Come talk to me. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you, Professor Emmett. It's been wonderful. No problem. It's been fun. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you will find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.